0: Welcome everyone, good morning to those of you on the west coast like me, good afternoon to those of you back east like my co-hosts, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. I am your host, Jay Miles, and once again, I'm in a different location, and this time I'm even further away from the Bay Area. I'm not even in the Bay Area i a whole other region, California, like seven hours. Later. So we have a good show for you today. We're going to be talking about the Soviet Union. And yes, you guys can get all of your styling questions in today. But before we get there, the setup's a little, a little hard to get to. Let me introduce... My co-host, my homie, my dog, he was missing Thursday. I know you guys missed him Thursday, but that's okay because you can watch him on various Black News channels. He was going at it. He was going ham. He was so going so hard on the Black News channel that Mark Lamont Hill was afraid to come on here. I don't know if that's true, or not, but he definitely was on the Black News Channel. He is the man that is not afraid to mouth-mouth the bourgeoisie. Please welcome Mr. Pascal Robert.
1: peace and greetings to the chat peace and greetings to the audience peace and greetings jason miles jason i want to let you know that i missed being on the show on thursday but i know you i know you guys had a wonderful show with you and gene talking about healthcare. And i also want to let you know i'm very excited for today's show and i just want to give a brief reminder as to why because you already know this for those in the audience who may have forgotten i have two uncles who left Haiti during the height of the Cold War to go study in the Soviet Union. One went to study physics and the other went to study chemistry. I actually have a Russian, Russian cousin who was born in the Soviet Union during the Cold War. I have two cousins who were born in the Soviet Union during the Cold War. So I have a particular fondness for Soviet history. And the Soviet project coming from a country born as a revolution as well. So I'm looking forward to this show.
0: I mean, he's very prepared. I just want you guys to know that. Me personally, in the back of my dark mind, I think that fool was like, you know what? I got to get these questions ready for Saturday. I'm not even showing up Thursday. (laughs) Saturday is my day to shine. So he was practicing all his Mau Mau questions on the Black News channel. He was getting ready. So are you ready? Because the Mau Mau hour is also this week coming.
1: That's right. We're going to have a great mile mile hour. We're going to be talking about a video that's on YouTube of a civil rights panel after the March on Washington with James Baldwin, Harry Bell DeFonte, and a few other Hollywood uh, bigwigs and uh, Sidney Poitier talking about their thoughts on the March on Washington.
0: So, if you guys want to be a part of this discussion and you want to ask Pascal questions in real time, make comments in real time, there's one way to do it, and that is become a patron. Patreon.com backslash Bitter Lake Presents, and wherever you're watching this show, there are links in the description. That being said, he was once the Black man in Maine. Now, he is just another brown drop in chocolate city he is marcus of the left flank beds
2: yo 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 well and that's the thing black has to be close to power um to be able to you know give the nuance and explanations so let's get our uh no 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 votes no yes votes just sit on the sidelines and uh just stay happy to be here.
0: He and and also we can't forget uh the host of a new gaming show. You can't see behind me, but there's like gaming shit everywhere. This is actually the place where I learned about role play gaming. The people that own this place actually talk me a lot about that that whole world. But great inaugural episode with friend of show, friend in real life, Dan Larson. He's everyone's favorite professor in the heartland. He's bringing leftist thought to one of the reddest parts of America. He is mean, Gene Bajlan.
3: Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Pascal. Good morning, Marcus. And of course, Good morning, Jason
1: Miles.
0: So the crew is all here. Are you guys I'm excited over. for this show? I am. I, I will say this in Pascal. I wouldn't say defense of Pascal, but kind of to his point about this show being pretty good. We had agreed um, about a month or so ago that I wasn't going to make any more intro clips for the weekends because it just takes up too much time. and There's other actually projects um, that I'm supposed to be doing. Situations making it a little more difficult and um i wanted to make one for this show as i was putting you know setting everything up and getting the events already i was like oh i should do one for this it's like no no, i don't i don't have time i'm gonna go down the dark dark rabbit hole so i'm excited for this show as well because i know i know uh, once we get rocking on this, this chat is gonna fucking blow, <laughs> blow the hell up. You know, sadly we should have got uh our other good friend and friend of show, uh, Professor Asatar Bear, on this one. Cause this one would have probably went for like three hours if we would have got Doctor Bear on.
2: I don't know what's gonna be so long about this. You, Stalin, you how much don't, do you know about the Russian Revolution? I don't, I don't, I just, I mean, like from what I see on Twitter, Stalin was a pretty good guy. You know, oh, dude, dude. the U.S. <laughs> the U.S. talked a little trash, but he was a pretty decent guy, and you know that's it. You know, go back to you know, like he's a also a smoke show or er, young Stalin. So like I don't <laughs> I don't know what's so controversial about the topic, but uh, I, I'm open. You know, I'm open to you know,
1: so Soviet Union history and rev- the res- Russian Revolution is more than just Stalin. I I'm aware. You know, yeah, I'm just, I'm just know, being a Fascinating yeah. subject matter. One of the most important revolutions in the history of the world
0: i'm telling you pascal thursday he was like i can't show up thursday because i must
1: be paired must be prepared for saturday i would make the argument that the russian revolution is more important to the world than the french revolution Ooh.
3: i mean i think both those revolutions both those revolutions are important but because they they're all part of a broader revolution
1: which was more liberatory the french revolution or the russian revolution
3: well, they occurred at different times, so it's, you know, at the time, the French Revolution was a progressive revolution, but by the 20th century, the bourgeois revolution had become reactionary.
1: This what, is historical materialism, my friend. What countries in the global south got liberated because
0: Ask of this French revolution. We haven't even invited the guests yet. This is what I'm talking about. I told you guys, you don't understand. This is Can why get- Thursday, he wasn't here because he was getting prepared. Yeah, he well, let's, let's be denied.
3: Let's bring on the guest, my my dear friend from uh, university.
0: So, Dr. Haron Yumas is a, a regional expert on history, national identities, and political propaganda. His academic and popular publications cover Ukraine, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. He received his master's and PhD from Oxford University. That's that's where he knows Jean. They're Oxford alums. Dr. Yilmaz was a research fellow at Harvard University and British Academy. He lectured on Stalinism at Queen Mary University of London. Currently, Dr. Yilmaz is Central Asia Research Forum series editor at Rutledge, Taylor, and Francis Group. Is that a good introduction?
3: It's a good introduction. He's yeah. also an expert on pickles.
0: That's weird.
3: And I'm mad you knew that. Pickles that are weird? an important food stuff.
0: For
3: stuffing well,
0: your food for sandwich
3: makers. no you can eat pickles uh <laughs> al fresco
0: okay bubblegum
1: <laughs>
0: you can
2: Try eat, pickles, pickles, on pickles. eat. You got
1: pickles on the side pickles let's on top not pickles underneath. On, let's not focus on gene's desires to eat phallic symbols let's just leave that alone
3: you're the one talking about pickles being phallic symbols <laughs>
0: We're applauding Eugene eating pickles. So, the guests <laughs> Please, welcome assuming everyone. that they're still here. Please welcome everyone. If he hasn't ran away, please welcome Dr. Harun Yilmaz. <laughs> well,
2: thank you for Thanks. coming and putting up with us.
4: Thank you for the introduction. I haven't experienced uh, such a great introduction in my life so far, uh, and I'm not 20 years old. So I hope when I open my mouth, I will not be a boring uh, scholar next to your uh, great chat just before me.
0: Oh, no, we do all that to loosen you up so you get ready for some seriousness, some silliness and some breaking down of history. Um, Now, first things first, let's just be honest. People come to watch the show For Pascal's questions And when Pascal actually Takes a day off To prepare For an episode Because I'm not uh, That's why he was gone He wasn't tired He wasn't exhausted He just wanted to prepare So I'm going to give the floor Look at this Pascal I'm going to give the floor (laughs) (laughs) Do you because you are ready so there you go you
1: have the floor i'm going to start with the introductory question for people who are not familiar with the russian revolution in the soviet union dr Harun, can you please explain to our audience what was the political situation in czarist russia the Tsar was the king, basically, of Russia before the Russian Revolution. What was the political economy of Russia? What was the economic situation? And who were the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks? And why was that even a need? Or what was the situation or conflict that caused a need for a revolution in pre-World War I Russia in the first place?
4: Ah, uh, uh thank you so much uh, um, uh it's a it's a very long question uh, it can be dissected into a couple of questions uh, if i forget something please remind me um, um let me start first uh, to thank you all um for your time and attention um now um what was the political situation before the revolution in russia um it's an, it's an interesting it's an interesting picture because in 1913 just before the first world war uh, the romanov dynasty uh, which was represented by the tsar nicholas ii uh, celebrated its 300 years Ruling uh, Russia as a, as a dynasty, and uh, they uh, organized a grand tour in uh, Russia from one province to another. Um, the royal family traveled to see their subjects, subjects celebrate, uh, celebrated occasion, uh, you know, the refreshing their in a way um, um, uh, their bond uh, between the subject and the uh, monarch, uh, and. Um, if you have seen those photographs when they visited the different cities in russia you would think that n- no chance there would be a revolution in russia this monarchy is so popular everyone loves the uh, tsar uh, and uh, everyone is for the monarchy you know in 1913 just one year before the first world war uh, and we have in 1917 not one but two revolutions uh, in in Russia yes in uh, three uh, four years uh, after that um russia was um, in economic sense of course uh, um it it was um, experiencing uh, a path of development like catching up with the with the british french and german uh, um, um, uh, cases <clears throat> um, of course, Britain and United States were they were leading uh, economies, and then would come uh, immediately uh, Germany, and then France and Belgium, etc., Italy, and in Europe, in Western Europe, then we would have a, kind of a second league of capitalist countries, semi-capitalist, as a semi-industrialized, uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. And the Russian Empire. Um, so uh, they were in this troubled road of industrialization, but they knew that they were a couple of steps behi- behind. They are lacking their, um, they are lacking capital. They are lacking investment. Ninety uh, percent of the eighty, eighty more than eighty percent of the population lived in uh, villages. They were illiterate. Um, only 15 percent were in uh, towns and uh, cities um, and they most of them uh, most of the literate population was, was there and um, there was a attempt of rapid industrialization but it was uh, it was late and if we, considering the scale of russia uh, um, it was also uh, small uh yet uh, there were big western uh, investment capital investments like um, in uh, St Petersburg uh, one of the biggest uh, ammunition factories uh, in Europe uh, was uh, founded by um, western investors uh, Donetsk in now in Ukraine um, french uh, mining industry invested uh, probably in today's Um, currencies in today's values, billions of uh, dollars uh, and coal mines, uh, they, one of the biggest coal mines were there in Europe. So there were, there was this um, um, big industrial investments, and huge, a big ocean of uh, illiterate peasantry, um, gradual um, internal migration from countryside to those Uh, points of attraction and there is an increasing tension because there were constant and increasing inequalities in the society. Um, Big investments brought big changes, transformations in certain spots, certain locations in this huge country. But the rest of the country was, uh, of course, isolated. And um, big landlords um, from the feudal system, like they, they uh, of course had a a, a pleasant life. Um, Most of them lived in Saint Petersburg, in the capital. Uh, They had their own manors, big houses there, Um, and they they, sometimes they would go, you know, in the summer to to uh, inspect their uh, lands. Um, Yeah, that was big inequalities, uh, an autocrat uh, ruling um, without sharing as much as possible, without sharing political power with any uh, kind of parliament, political parties, um, trying to keep the uh, power in his hands. Um, That also created, uh, of course, tension because there were uh, people who wanted to reform the the political structure. They wanted to have a a parliament, something similar to uh, what they observed in Britain or in France. Um, There were different uh, proponents of political uh, ideologies, center-left, center-right, you know, uh, that you could see at that time in France, in Britain or in Germany. So, so, basically, for our audience, is that
1: Russia was a monarchy with the Czar yeah. who was a king in a country that was basically more economically backwards than most of the industrial Europe, which was in some either advanced or moderately advanced form of capitalism, while Russia was largely a fusion a feudal feudalist peasantry where you had large numbers of the population illiterate farmers who were working on land that was not even their own for feudal landlords like they had in britain before the coming of capitalism going back to like the 1200s and 1100s and one of the reasons Mark, Karl marx is famously say known for saying that the last place he believed that it could be a socialist a communist revolution was in russia is because there was no proletariat because it was a peasant you know agricultural feudal Uh, Peasantry and people who know their Marxist or socialist history is that it's not to the invention of Maoism that socialists come up with the idea that peasants farmers can be revolutionaries as well. So at that time, there wasn't even a belief that a country like Russia was even capable of having a Marxist revolution, because it did not have an industrial proletarian labor base. Would I be correct in that assessment?
4: Completely correct. Yes. That's the that was the case, we could say uh, yeah mm-hmm. but can I,
3: can I just can I just ask though, but you know you mentioned that there had been a process of industrialization, so certainly you know um the uh, the majority of the mass of the population in russia uh during the you know at the time of the Bolshevik revolution were peasants, eighty percent you said eighty percent of people, but we do have. The situation of uh, combined uneven development where you do mm-hmm. alongside so- some of the most backward economic structures in Europe very advanced form of industrial organization and a small but influential proletarian class so yes certainly we're not dealing in a society where we have um, we have a you know a, a majority of the population living in cities and working as industrial workers but we do have in critical nodes of political power in the tsarist empire st petersburg moscow we have a modern industrial economy and in fact an industrial economy which is hypermodern it's like they they're not importing industrial technology from the mid 18 uh, uh, 1850s they're in, uh, the the french in- investors the other investors are bringing the most modern forms of industrial organization so we have these this 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 very strange situation where we have a coexistence between a, 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 a industrial proletariat that is a minority, but is located in strategically important parts of the country, and then the vast majority of the country, which is peasantry, and you know we'll come to this later, but and also not Russian. You know, you have a huge, you know, maybe only 50% of the population are, are ethnic Russians, and we have this huge, unconsolidated uh, population. But I think it's important to stress that. There, that would you agree? There, there was, and the 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 great spurt of the late 19th, 20th century. The great, you know, this did create some kind of industrial proletariat.
4: Yes, of course, of course. I mean, that that's the that's the reason one of uh, the many reasons of these tensions before the revolution, and one of the reasons was this. Um, uh, source of tension was this uh, uh, unequal uh, development in the country. Uh, you would find certain uh, cities or certain regions extremely developed, thanks to like injection of uh, um, uh, high volume of capital. Let's say in in Saint Petersburg, uh, as I gave this Putilov, uh, uh ammunition Still factories, yeah. the yeah, uh, biggest ones and. Uh, and also still works, yes, and uh, and uh, uh, coal mines in, uh, in Donetsk. Um, you know, uh, Odessa, for instance, was a, a modern, um, pleasant uh, port city, uh, uh, a modern city that was the, uh, a big port at the Black Sea coast. So, um, But then uh, the rest of the country, in a way, experiencing a, a different century, <laughs> a different yeah. time time zone. Yeah, but that was ninety percent of the population. I mean, the industrial sector was basically
1: I went, they weren't petite bourgeois in that they didn't own means of production, but they were minuscule compared to the, the condition of the majority of the population co- completely. That was I wouldn't even call them a proletariat. They were basically people working in a small sector factory development that was fun- basically you know maintaining cities. Cities. Well, I, I, I would I would push
3: back. They they were the they were an industrial proletariat, and yes, they were a minority of you know in an objective term they were an industrial proletariat uh, living in a very regimented industrial formation within these huge factories. But yeah, they were a minority. But I think what is critical, and perhaps Harun can speak to this, is that they were located at the, they they existed right next to the critical nodes of power, such as the. Yeah, the, the yeah, the, in the capital. So, I, you know, just because they're a minority doesn't mean they're not a proletariat. You know, I, I don't yeah, see... But they, don't, they represent less than like 15% of the whole country. That's true. But under a Marxist, I mean, yes, and under a Marxist scheme, uh, you know, like a dictatorship of the proletariat is usually envisaged as a dictatorship of the majority of the population. But, you know, under Russian conditions, you know, a dictatorship of the proletariat would be a dictatorship of a
1: minority group hence why marx would have said that russia was not the place where we we're going to see a, 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 a you know a, a socialist revolution
4: well not to... only Marx said but um after Blackout. the revolution kautsky also uh said that you are in the wrong direction because uh, you are not the right country to do this you do not have enough uh, economic base uh, for this transformation you will end up with just a uh, uh, naked uh, dictatorship instead of a dictatorship of proletariat. i mean the kautsky who you know, the uh, leading figure of German uh, socialists Socialism. and assistant of Engels and so on. Um, Let's
1: not forget that even many of the earlier uh, leaders of the Russian Revolution believed that the revolution would would be global because Germany would follow suit with the the Marxist revolution because er- Karl Marx was German. Actually, the, the place that he thought that he would be ideal for the Marxist revolution would be Germany.
3: So but, but I think I think the point I think the point though is that you know the Bolsheviks, when they took power, as you rightly note, saw their revolution, and there was some basis of this in Marx's writings, but they saw their revolution as the basis for a, a global revolution and did not envisage. Did not envisage the revolution failing to spread westward. the warnings that had been given by people like Plekhanov was that it, and Plekhanov, for people who don 't know was one of the founders of uh, Russian Marxism was that if there is a re- revolution in Russia and Russia is isolated, you will have the socialists in power uh, doing you know doing industrialization, uh, bringing all the brutality that comes with industrialization inked industrialization, and then getting the blame for for like the harsh conditions that drag the country from uh, from uh, pre-industrial to industrial situation. My role
1: here is not to indict the Soviet project. I'm an admirer what? of the Soviet project. Me, makes me... Me, what makes me admire the Soviet project is that I believe it succeeded in light of the fact that it didn't have what most Orthodox Marxists believed would be necessary to be successful.
0: Hold, well, on. Uh, hold on Gene, hold on Let me sure. address this super chat before you guys Go back and forth, I warned you people That this was going to be a spicy show And now you're seeing Why It's going to be so spicy Did, it's the, Thank you uh, Many doctors for this super chat Coming out of Great Britain Gene, this is a countryman Right here Did the peasants have revolutionary Potential
4: Harun Hmm. Um, I I wouldn't think so. Um, um, why? Uh, because uh, revolution happened uh, when uh, multiple things uh, overlapped at one point. You see, uh, usually hi- historical events are not uh, like from A to B, from and then from B to C. But then there are three, four uh, factors overlap, and then you have a Uh, kind of an explosion. (laughs) Um, So um, first of all, um, we mentioned about these uh, tensions, uh, um, different levels of development in in the same country. Um, uh, While there is a rapid development at one corner, uh, the majority is uh, uh, lacking this. And then but uh, I should add that um, actually millions were Gradually uh, being integrated, but slowly, you see, uh, for instance, I will just give you a a quick example, Uh, tea, uh, usually Russian villagers would not consume tea and sugar. Uh, before 19th century. But as by the end of the 19th century, railways, uh, railway connections established between big cities, especially in European Russia, uh, they brought tea and sugar uh, to um, countries, to the countryside. So even the villagers' consumption uh, gradually transformed. But these things are uh, these things happened in a very slow motion, uh, in a very gradual manner. While in, 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 for instance, as I said, in Donetsk or in uh, Petersburg, there was a huge leap forward. Now, uh, those uh, new proletariat in those uh, cities, uh, who just, who happened to be like a year ago or six months before that, uh, a serf in a in a big landlord's um, Uh, a state. um, They continue to keep uh, the connection between the countryside and urban, the uh, urban uh, life. Like it wasn't a a second or third generation uh, urban dwellers or factory workers. They were still in a transition state sometimes also radicalization uh, can be um, a consequence of this. Um, Another aspect is political system, um, just I'm trying to recap things we discussed, political system uh, was very rigid. Um, There wasn't any, um, um, uh, you know, channels to express dissent. Um, Political parties uh, most of the time uh, banned or they had limited uh, freedoms. Um, as uh, even after 1905 uh, revolution and the Russian Duma uh, that was uh, created after that, established after that, founded after that, had limited powers. Um, So uh, going back to uh, peasants issue. um, And the third factor is the war itself. Uh, The First World War uh, generated a huge burden on the Russian economic system and in political system Uh, and Russian in one word, in one sentence, probably Russia could not cope with this pressure uh, because this was a total war. Uh, perhaps American civil war is the early example of this uh, industrial war. Uh, but uh, in U- Europe experienced that scale of war uh, industrial scale um, during the First World War. And uh, Russia was the weakest link uh, among the capitalist system there. So that's why, uh, in a way, war uh, probably, if you think about this retrospectively, about all these factors, economic factors, political factors, and so on, War was the uh, catalyzing element. You know, the, the, there, was a, there was a threshold, uh, there was a boiling point. Uh, the country reached to that boiling point uh, thanks to the war. Otherwise, that's why I mentioned earlier uh, 1913 celebrations, 300 years uh, uh, anniversary of uh, um, Romanov dynasty. Uh, uh, people were very happy to celebrate it. Uh, you know, uh, but right one year after that, uh, the war burden, uh, inflation rates, uh, hundreds of uh, persons, like uh, 300, 400 percent, the bread prices uh, skyrocketing. Uh, millions of Russian peasant soldiers uh, literally perishing at the German front because the German industry, German railways, German uh, technology, German warfare, uh, constantly beating the Russian army. Russians only had manpower in a way, uh, pushing another couple of millions of peasant soldiers with rifles uh, to the front line. Uh, When they are perished, another few million again. And this, of course, created a huge discontent. Um, And the prices are going up. Uh, the um, long queues in the cities, Petersburg, although Russia was one of the biggest coal producers at that time, Petersburg could not get the coal from the Black Sea coast, uh, Black Sea region, Donetsk because of the weak transportation system. Petersburg usually uh, got its uh, imported its coal consumption and you know urban uh, buildings could be uh, for the heating of these buildings in Petersburg they would bring coal from Britain overseas <laughs> can you imagine like transporting the coal all the way from Britain was cheaper than bringing their own coal transporting it from um, Donetsk. and during the war uh, when the railway system nearly collapsed because the frontline constantly demanded the locomotives, wagons, and so on. Uh, They could not uh, transport coal within the country to the big cities, and people start to freeze in the middle of Russian winter. So uh, all these things overlapped, came together, and we had a kind of an explosion in uh, in February 1917. So villagers alone um, uh, could not be uh, the only factor that would lead us to a revolution. Because there was an uprising already in 1916 in Central Asia and it was suppressed successfully. So there could be another villager uprising and it could be again suppressed. I mean, the the, in peaceful conditions, the regime had the capacity to control uh, more or less the population and uh, regenerate itself. I want to War created
1: extra burdens. I wanted to ask two very important questions. Wasn't it? considered that Tsar nicholas basically because of the way he came into power was going to be weak wasn't he He basically predicted to be a very weak unsuccessful czar in the first place and second of all can you talk about how the loss to japan also helped demoralize the russian consciousness as well and the role that had in weakening the confidence of the country as well under the Tsar's leadership. Adit- I mean,
4: the, Nicholas. The Tsar's yeah. uh, personality and his role uh, in shaping the course of events in uh, between, like uh, beginning of the century, let's say, first year of twentieth century, and nineteen seventy—that's seventeen years. If you think about that short period, um, I mean, there are historians who. Uh, Uh, Claim that uh, if we, if Russians had a different tsar, then everything could be different. Uh, You know, um, when you look from Marx's perspective, of course, uh, to invest too much in individual characters um, uh, uh, is something that you uh, you try to avoid because um, uh, what was the uh, I can't now remember the exact phrase, but Marx says. Uh, Individuals cannot, um, uh, they make decisions, uh, but they can, they do those, they make those decisions within the conditions that were created before them. uh,
3: Man makes his own history, but conditions not, in, in conditions not of his choosing. I believe it. Something like
4: ex- that. Ex- excellent. Yes. So uh, since then, there is a discussion in, among historians, of course, uh, uh, when they discuss these. I mean, when they uh, when they consider these kind of turning points in history, how far individuals uh, had an impact, uh, or they were. Uh, shackled, they were uh, you know, uh, enslaved or limited by uh, the conditions that they live in, uh, political, condi- economic conditions especially. So uh, Tsar uh, was not a good politician, uh, we know that. Uh, I mean, uh, to be a good politician is important if you rule a big country and if you want to jealously keep the political power in your hands and refuse to Hand some, you know, hand over um, uh, part of the political power to a parliament or some political parties to a a cabinet of ministries. Um, He, in that sense, he was very conservative. Uh, He was not, he did not have a reformist mind. Um, This also increased the problems, uh, deteriorated things, uh, especially during the war. And on top of that, uh, he was probably not the best uh, military leader in history. Uh, and he uh, personally uh, took uh, the initiative and went to the front line and uh, uh, supervised the military. Uh, operations. Um, and that's why uh, w- uh, when the Russian army uh, was uh, consec- uh, more than once defeated by the Germans, um, everyone blamed the Tsar, uh, I mean, ordinary people, because he wanted to run the show, but he did not have the capacity to do that. What about the Japan uh, factor? What about? The Japan, Japan, ah, Jap- yeah, of course, the 1905, uh, the defeat was uh, w- was an important was an important thing, I think, because uh, Russian Russian state Russian political system um, um, autocracy uh, was based on military victories. Uh, and russian state uh, except the crimean defeat uh, for the last 200 years delivered what it promised uh, ex- expanded the territory and defeated the uh, napoleonic army um, you know uh, in the southern neighbors the ottoman empire iran uh, gained territories uh, in the south as well so and they initial uh, perception of japan was another Asiatic uh, people, another Asiatic country that we can defeat like this, you know, because we are superior here. We rule this Eurasian land and who they are, you know, uh, I mean, you can find even uh, racist depictions of uh, Russian cartoons uh, of that time. Uh, uh, But then uh, the Japanese uh, 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 Navy uh, and Army, they managed to defeat uh, the Russians. Uh, and that was, of course, a, a big, I think, blow in the self-confidence uh, of uh, the Russians, which which actually between 1905 and 1914 um, triggered another wave of reforms. Because the system was so static that uh, in Russia you would see reforms, you would observe r- reforms always after a military defeat. Um, after the Crimean War, you you, you can observe, for instance, the Crimean... Emancipation, I, the emancipation uh, of the peasantry. Exactly, exactly. And and uh, <clears throat> rapid uh, construction of uh, railways and so on mm-hmm. um, uh, in the second half of 19th century. And then after 1905, 1905 defeat against Japan, again, another wave of reforms. How can we rapidly develop and industrialize this country? Where can we find the capital? How are we going to solve the Capital accumulation problem, Uh, these were all discussed among the um, uh, elites in Russia before the revolution. And when the Bolsheviks came to power, they found the same problem uh, in front of them. You know, how can we rapidly develop this country and how can we find uh, a necessary capital for that? How can we accumulate the capital for rapid industrialization and urbanization?
2: going kind of even back to like the things in the uh there's like the developing uh <laughs> narrative on the ground of like why they you know like kind of went to um the revolution can you go into some of like the players um and I, and and also if you could tie them to like what i guess what are the specific actions or and or pushes these you know other players are are pushing so you know who are the people who are pushing for government reform, which, you know, eventually resulted in, you know, I think uh, a neutered Duma, Duma to begin with. Um, and then talking about the, you know, like you're talking about the, the rigid uh, uh, government process or rigid politics, Like, uh, mm-hmm. but also it's like, who, who are the people behind that, you know, and I guess who are the populations representing those reforms versus the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks? And how do those, I guess, different groups start Act, acting on each other prior to revolution.
4: I, I see that that also we can link to the uh, the other half of Pascal's question. I I uh, I did not cover over the Mensheviks Bolsheviks and uh, uh what was that about um, now <clears throat> um of course when we when we uh, when we think about these um, ideologies political movements and so on uh, we tend to think um Um, uh, sometimes uh, we tend to think that the whole country is involved. (laughs) Um, uh, That's a a very modern concept, you know, uh, uh, millions of people involved in in politics. Um, That's a very modern concept. Uh, Russia in uh, in the beginning of the century, before the revolution, uh, was a very traditional uh, country in that sense. Uh, What I mean by this, as I said, majority of the population was they were villagers, they were more <clears throat> passive agents, they were isolated, they were not part of a bigger economic structure. So um, uh, they would they had a vague perception of what's going on. Okay, there was a Tsar, and that was our father. We obey him. And there is a church, and there is a priest in that Orthodox church, and this is the right belief, and we pray there and and that's it and the rest of it was village life you know uh, uh my small plot of land uh, what i'm cultivating how is the weather going to be uh, if i'm going to uh, i have a daughter where can i find a good man as a husband for her <laughs> you know like those kind of uh, daily life issues uh, but not like um, hmm, um What's going to be the future of Russia? We want democracy or we want freedoms. I mean, ordinary people, isolated villages in, living in uh, in huge distances. I mean, there, there are provinces in Russia as big as France and only half a million people live there. You see what I mean? And there is no telegraph lines. There is no railroads. Uh, once a while, a passenger comes or a, a postman comes uh, twice a, a month delivers something and then goes in muddy roads in this in the winter roads I walked in the, su- in the spring uh, the mud sticking because of sticky mud uh, you cannot even walk uh, on a, a, on those roads you know like because you you just stick and uh, sing in a sticky mud you leave your boots there <laughs> um in the mud so uh, that was a, that was a, that was the Let's say mental uh, um, uh, map uh, of an ordinary person. And then we have a minority of uh, literate educated people in big cities, 10 percent, 15 percent. Some of them even traveled to Europe. They saw uh, what's going on in paris in London, in Berlin, rapid industrialization of Germany, how they managed to catch up the uh, the British and even sometimes surpassed with their electricity, chemical industry, and so on, and a bit of admiration for that, including Bolsheviks now uh, in a political spectrum, we had uh, uh constitutional uh democrats ca- cadets uh in russian uh, they wanted a, um, a parliamentary a pl- parliamentary p- parliament plus monarchy so they wanted british they wanted the british model for uh, russia they w- they were located in center right right and then we in the center left uh we had uh, narodniks and uh, social revolutionaries um they had, um, it's a, of course, 19th century uh, is a long story, but uh, they they wanted more uh, like a popular, they were for a popular uprising, a more popular uh, a moment of the ordinary people in politics. Um, universal uh, voting rights, um, at least for, for men, for that at that time, of course, um, their priority, um, and um, more emancipation, uh, and so forth. So uh, and land distribution. They wanted to uh, distribute land among the peasants. Um, they wanted to, their priority was uh, land reform. And then we have a, a, a smaller group, uh, further in left, um, um, who read uh, Marx, Engels, uh, you know, who were who were involved in uh, these discussions um, among socialist circles in Europe, or, or at least familiar with it. And they wanted to, uh, they, they wanted something similar in Russia, but they 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 were not. Obviously, in majority, right? Uh, they were more marginal uh, than these two uh, central uh, political movements, as I said, cadets and uh, social revolutionaries and Narodniks and so on, so forth. And then we have um, uh, in the right wing, we have more conservative groups uh, <clears throat> uh, who. Um, uh, supported uh, autocracy, uh, one man rule, um, uh, the autocracy, one-man rule, the superiority uh, of Tsar um, and um, uh, omnipresent, omnipotent uh, powers, uh, and uh, they were very conservative. Um, and um, yeah, uh, they, they, um, for them, Russian imperial uh, system and the church came first uh, in the. Uh, let's say, uh, right wing conservative circles. So that was the spectrum Uh, within the Bolsheviks within the Marxist uh, Russian Marxists. we have a a well known division between Mensheviks and Bolsheviks uh, because the Russian Social Democrat Workers Party uh, essentially uh, was founded and um, Uh, I mean, the Russian Marxist followers, uh, followers of Marx founders founded founded the party. And then within that party, uh, we had to to uh, gradually uh, two uh, branches appear to There was a split division Bolsheviks and Mensheviks. Um, Of course, we can also count uh, uh, sometimes Trotsky as a third element. that's, that's of course, a uh, uh, detailed party history. Um, but um, yeah, um, and they had different approach. Uh, Mensheviks and Bolsheviks had a different approach, as you know. Um, uh, Bolsheviks wanted to have a militant, uh, uh, a small uh, militant revolutionary party, um, and uh, like. Uh, uh, in a way, um, uh, and uh, urgent in a way, in a more urgency of revolution they had in they had in their mind. Uh, but the Mensheviks uh, wanted to have a, a mass uh, political party where masses could be members, and um, uh, Mensheviks were more for the uh, gradual um, development of the country. You know, uh, let's pass the usual uh, capitalist uh, stages. Uh, Let's wait uh, the industrial for the industrialization and urbanization of the uh, of Russian Empire. And uh, gradually we will have bigger cities, bigger middle class, bigger um, um, uh, labor movement, uh, labor unions. uh, And then uh, as in as in as in Western Europe, uh, we will have a. A big socialist party uh, with uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of followers. Uh, this will bring us to, uh, in a way, to the next stage uh, in historical development. Mm. Lenin and Lenin led the Bolsheviks. They they said, no, we don't uh, we don't want this. We want a shortcut, uh, and we will do this with a, a militant revolutionary group. Can, can we make a metaphor between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks? The
1: the Mensheviks being democratic socialists and the Bolsheviks being Marxist Leninists. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, I leave it to you. <laughs>
1: I think it's a pretty effective metaphor. What do you think, Gene?
3: Mm, I think I think trying to apply. Uh, political it's a metaphor, term. are uh, trying to apply the metaphor. You're trying to hammer a uh, square uh, shape into a round hole. That's what I think.
1: I just want to say one thing. This is this this is. If you guys indulge me, can you t- I have a theory about Lenin. I believe that Lenin's whole motivation stems by the f- from the fact that his brother was assassinated by the Czar. Point blank. I'll, can you address that? Because I think that's a part of his personality that. I'd like to people to talk about and I'd like to put him in concert because he's kind of the father of the Soviet Union as a country. What do you think about that as a motivating factor? And what and where is his role as a Bolshevik? And where was Trotsky in, rel, in relation to the Bolshevik and Mensheviks?
0: That's a hell of a question there, Pascal. Damn. <laughs>
4: good question actually uh again this brings us back to the role of the individual uh in the in a historical process uh well um i mean the personal motivations of course psychological motivations of a person of an individual to um uh to follow a political um uh, to to to, to uh, Maybe. Uh, maybe it played a role, uh, you know, for him to be. Uh, the thing is, uh, um, this could bring him in different directions. You know, the, uh, his uh, his brother's fate. Uh, um, uh, he could be uh, uh, he could oppose the system, but he could be an anarchist uh there were Russian anarchists at that time as well you see uh um he could oppose the system uh, and he could be uh, a social revolutionary or um, you know the um but he he has chosen uh, a, a particular ideology a particular path uh, so uh perhaps in the being rebellious being uh, in the opposition Perhaps his childhood uh, his family experience uh, played a role. Uh, but of course, his choice of ideology or how to oppose the system, uh, what kind of ideology or what kind of course uh, uh, what kind of plan project uh, to support? Um, probably that's a later stage uh, I would I would say.
3: So I have a I have a question. Uh, here. Yes. So, you know, we w- when we talk about the Russian Revolution, we, you know, we ov- obviously we often focus on the class dynamics, the land question, the industrial uh, workers, and so on and so forth. But also, one of the critical questions that was was facing the the the, the opposition in a general sense, and the Bolshevik Party in particular, was the national question and particularly the question of ethnic and national diversity within the Tsarist empire not everybody in Tsarist Russia was uh, was an ethnic Russian or a Russian speaker even within the Russian ethnic community there was an enormous amount of regional diversity in terms of culture and in terms of uh, uh, in terms of dialect and then of course you've mentioned places like Central Asia where you have a majority muslim population uh, you have uh, you have uh, uh, ethnic communities on the uh, uh, in the Baltics, with you know Germans, with uh, uh, Latvians, Lithuanians, poles. you have this enormously diverse empires. so this kind of speaks to it, but you know this speaks to why the national question was so important. but can you can you give us an idea of you know how the Bolsheviks, when they took power uh, and in order to maintain power dealt with this pressing question, the issue of ethnic and national diversity within the Tsarist Empire.
4: Um, that's that's a very important aspect, actually, this nationality issue, uh, national question. Um, <clears throat> because um, especially uh, for, for Bolsheviks, uh, for the Bolsheviks, uh, to be honest, um, uh, Marxist literature, I mean, what what Marx and Engels wrote was not about nations much. I mean, they, they didn't, uh, uh, Was as, it was a bit uh, something more or less ignored in Marxist theory, uh, national question, I mean. Um, because the engine of the history was class struggle, uh, uh, is class struggle, right? Uh, why to deal with nations? It's just a, a temporary phenomenon. Um, uh, it's it's going to be here and then it will disappear of. Uh, in the mid 19th century I'm talking about. But then um, Bolsheviks uh, took national question very seriously. And uh, that's not because the theory dictated them to do that, but the practice uh, of the time, the the realities of the day. Uh, The First World War first of all uh, showed clearly that national identities are much more stronger uh, when it comes to uh, convincing the masses about who they are. Um, National identities and nationalism uh, had been very powerful in uh, mobilizing people. And the socialists in Europe were divided during the war. Uh, The German Socialist uh, Social Democrat Party supported the German war effort, uh, which was a disappointment for many people around Europe. uh, progressive uh, among progressive groups um, and which was a direct contradiction uh, to of the uh, uh, to the second internationals uh, stuttgart resolution so uh, that the socialist parties would oppose the conflict because everyone was uh, uh, thinking about what we are gonna do if, we are go- if this uh, capitalist system impose a war upon us right so um uh, and, but the, according to the french labor leader uh, anyone resisting the war might have been shot by uh, french workers rather than the police so uh, politicians also found uh, a wave of nationalism uh, uh, that they could not uh, um i mean left socialist politicians uh, that they they could it was that they found it very difficult to uh, limit or uh, push back. And then the, and most of the, uh, I mean, probably half of the uh, uh, Bolshevik leadership was in Europe uh, when the war started. Lenin was in Switzerland, Uh, Trotsky was also abroad. I think he was in uh, New York or um, uh, if I'm I'm not mistaken. Um, um, Zinoviev was in Europe as well. Um, So, And Stalin uh, in 1912-13, he came and went back from uh, Austria-Hungary and then went back again. So um, uh, they they could observe the power of national identity and nationalism in Europe. Uh, I can go more into detail, uh, but I will just want to move on uh, to another aspect. Um, the, The other aspect is the Russian Civil War. Uh, Again, Russian Civil War demonstrated the power of nationalism or national identities. Now, the Russian Civil War usually uh, considered as a a struggle between the Bolsheviks and the white forces who wanted to restore the old regime, right? Uh, Mostly monarchists. But it was at the same time a clash between uh, Russian and non-Russian forces. Uh, In the Caucasus and Central Asia, uh, Non. Non-Russian populations, in uh, many cases, supported the Red Army uh, because they. Pardon? The United
1: States supported the White Army. The United States, the United States, the French, the British. It was an international war to to fight (laughs) for socialism.
4: Exactly. Uh, but within, within the Russian Empire, I mean, the, 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 or the Russian Republic after the, uh, February Revolution and dur- during the Civil War, uh, after the October Revolution, uh, many non-Russian ethnicities supported the Bolsheviks because Bolsheviks were fighting against, uh, the, uh, Tsarist, uh, rule. And, um, and, um, and, um, uh, because they were against the Russian imperial regime. They wanted to change the system and the non-Russian minor populations saw it as an opportunity. Ukraine was a bit complicated because there were strong pro-Bolshevik and anti-Bolshevik forces in Ukraine. There was a German intervention at some point. Then there was a Polish intervention, and at, at a later stage. So there were there are stages in Ukraine in case uh, during the Russian Civil War. I mean that, that, that in, during that 1918-1920 uh, 19, 19, years period. But in the Caucasus, in northern Caucasus, for instance, Chechens uh, supported Bolsheviks uh, because Lenin uh, said. Uh, We made a mistake as Russians. We made a mistake. Uh, We pushed indigenous people to the mountains and uh, uh, settled Russian uh, peasants, Russian colonizers in more fertile uh, lowlands. Uh, And I will reverse this policy. Uh, I will give what you had before. Uh, I will give you back what the Russian... um, um, imperial administration uh, taken from you. So uh, the same messages were given to Central Asian people. Uh, and some and, and these some of these promises were uh, fulfilled later on. I mean, they were not on, only uh, remained on paper. And that brings me to the uh, last point. The Bolsheviks promised something new. <clears throat> uh, and these non-Russian supported, non-Russian population supported uh, the Bolshevik cause because Bolshevik program clearly promised uh, cultural rights a certain level of self-determination and that was more successful securing the support of the locals than the white army uh, Mm -hmm. leadership basically they were uh, imperial generals of the imperial army uh, restoring wanted to restore the old system and they only said we want one and and, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, a single unit Russia uh, uh, as before. Uh, And they didn't recognize the ethnic uh, identities and they did not plan to, they they had no plans to give any kind of autonomy or cultural rights to any non-Russian groups. Uh, You know, Jews, Ukrainians, um, Belarusians, Baltic nations, whatever armenians uh, Uzbeks didn't matter for them they they thought Russia belongs to Russians and uh, that, that, full stop uh, so they did not have anything to uh, promise to the non-russians and I, I so wanna, yeah
1: we, we had a super chat that I wanted to address. it's very important. The person asked what was the how did the czar's anti-Semitism affect the development of the revolution? And I want to say, I'm very glad that we have you, uh, Dr. Harwon, because most Americans don't know. I, my, my admiration for the Russian Revolution, and I wanted to get more to the revolution, is that even though the revolution part, the October Revolution and February, they were nonviolent. There was basically no fighting. And people had this conception of the rev- Russian Revolution because of the, the pictures and the images of having this whole big violence. There was really no violence involved, per se. But what is the most important to me about this history even though it's called the Russian Civil War is where the real honor of the Soviet project comes is that most Americans don't know that the United States sent something like almost 10,000 troops to defeat the Soviet project the British the French sent thousands of troops at the beginning of the Soviet Union project (laughs) with their white army to come together to crush this earlier project with Lenin as the leader and Trotsky going all over during the Russian Civil War and destroying these imperialist capitalists and making the Soviet Union the victor. Most Americans have no knowledge of this history.
4: Yeah, correct. Yeah, that's that's true. Unfortunately, uh, that's one of the bits of history that uh, Les talked about. Uh, American troops landed, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken. The Vladivostok. Uh, Bla- uh, and I think, in the north mm-hmm. uh, um Japanese troops landed in, uh, in Far East, east in Vladivostok uh, French and Jer- British troops landed in Odessa in Black Sea coast uh, to support the white forces uh and they also supported uh, um the um was it the Germans supported later on um the fin- Finns uh, Finnish mm-hmm. uh the Bourgeois Finnish Republic uh, fin- um uh, in today's Finland and so on, so um, they supported um, all kind of uh, uh, movements as well. Uh, where, whatever they are, wherever they found an anti-Bolshevik uh, group, they supported. And uh, the, the fact the fact is, uh, those uh, White armies were a very uh, anti-Semitic discourse as well. Um, uh, they they depicted uh, the Bolsheviks as uh, par, part of a Jewish conspiracy uh because of trotsky uh, uh to, because, i mean the trotsky uh, is be, be, for being a, a russian jew uh, also uh, they played with that um uh, that you probably you have seen on the internet as well those prominent infamous uh, po- posters uh, trotsky um uh, depicted as a, like a a jewish monster um suffocating mm-hmm. russia uh Mother Russia or something like that. So they they had a very anti-Semitic uh, discourse. The White Russian White uh, forces.
1: Well, one thing I want to say, and I, I know what brothers indulge me, is that one of the reasons why I love the Russian Revolution and the history of the Soviet Union, Soviet Union overall, is that I've said this before. I've said it on social media. I said that the Russian Revolution is the Haitian Revolution for white people. That's
4: I it, think that's Re- Haitian Republic. Yeah. I, I see what you mean i see what you uh, yeah i can see a connection there and now i understand why you asked at the beginning uh, uh which which revolutions were more emancipating for in global sense uh french or russian revolution That was i mean actually
2: year.
3: after after the you know at the end of the day when we look at the atlantic revolutions as a whole which we could include the american the haitian the uh, French revolutions, French. the Haitian revolution is clearly the most radical of those revolutions. But you know, I I don't think you can do a one-to-one comparison between like the impact of the French and the Russian revolution because they build off each other. With no French revolution, there may not have been a Russian revolution. You know, because mm-hmm. you know when the when the Russian when revolutionaries in the 19th century looked towards revolutionary praxis. Harun knows within the context of the Ottoman Empire, it's the same thing. The the the, the Young Turks were founded on when 1889. Why? Because that was the centenary of the French Revolution. So the French Revolution, for all its deficiencies, was critical in the development of opening up Europe to capitalism, which in again, which uh, eventually opened up Europe to you know further developments. But I want to actually get back to a a, a you know a uh, a question about this, nat- you know, about the national question. So you outlined Harun about how the, you know, many minorities within the the Tsarist Empire looked to the Bolsheviks because they had they had a solution to the uh, national question, which was beyond just like forcing everyone to speak Russian and uh, converting everyone to, you know, Orthodox Christianity. Mm-hmm. So I have a two-part question. Uh, one of them is is kind of general and one of them is more specific the first question is how once the bolsheviks had secured themselves in power how did they go about implementing their resolution to the national question and secondly this is a kind of a a more specific one with regards to the muslim proportions of the Tsarist empire and people forget we have very important Muslim portions of the Tsarist Empire in Central Asia and the Caucasus in particular, but also in places like Tataristan, Bush Bashkiristan, and places like uh, places like that. How was the reception amongst Muslims towards the formation of a communist regime?
4: Hmm.
3: So this is a kind of two-part question. Um,
4: um, now um let me say a few things. Thank you very much. The um um about this um um before i think before i forget the the haitian re- revolution revolution in haiti uh, i think there was a soviet project to uh, to um to 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 do a movie about this uh, but i i might be mistaken i should check it out and i can send you if i found something interesting i can find you later on the details uh, there is uh, just a side note a uh, uh, footnote i wanted to add there now uh, going back to uh, na- nations um um First of all, I want to say a few words about how Bolsheviks saw uh, 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 nations and nationalism, right? Uh, because they understood that this is something important, and they cannot uh, reverse the uh, his, r- river of history. Uh, uh, they, they they should. They should find kind of an uh, accommodating uh, position. Uh, They cannot ignore it, but what to do with it, right? Because they they saw uh, essentially they saw nationalism as uh, how a Marxist or internationalist would it. for them. It was a false call of emancipation. Right. Uh, Let's start from there. Uh, It was a divisive and destructive ideology working uh, or discourse working against a United international working class revolution. So that's why they didn't they didn't like it, but they understood for the reasons that I tried to explain earlier. They understood that this is a huge force that uh, a contemporary reality that they cannot avoid. So they had to do something. So um, uh, the second thing is Bolsheviks were, uh, they saw national identities. uh, uh, They didn't see them uh, primordial or eternal as nationalists or nation builders uh, claimed around the globe, right? Uh, For the Bolsheviks, national identities were not uh, primordial or eternal. Um, uh, So they were right uh, on that. uh, National identities were evolving phenomena and they were modern concepts. Um, So everyone uh, in the Bolshevik party agreed on that. But then the thing is, Bolsheviks were wrong. They were wrong in uh, attaching national identity strictly to economic relations of capitalist era. You know, this this strong economic determinism made them falsely conclude that nations would disappear. National identities would disappear once the society moved from capitalism to socialism. And uh, and the, um, and then the the only thing they had to do is just to reach to that uh, magical moment in a way uh, so that national identities would uh, evaporate. Mm. Um, so I can give you one uh, interesting example. Uh, when Khrushchev was the first secretary um, after Stalin and uh, when they uh, stopped celebrating Stalin's birthday and um, that that anniversary uh, during this de-Stalinization period, some Georgians took it as an offensive policy against Georgian identity because some Georgians saw Stalin as a Georgian leader, uh, apart from being a Soviet leader, so there were demonstrations and protests. Uh, uh, you see what I mean? The Georgians on the street in Tbilisi protesting um, uh, uh, against the Soviet government in 19 second half of 1950s. Uh, um, why we are not? Uh, why the government I- is trying us to forget Stalin? Uh, because they saw it. That group, that group uh, in the population, saw Stalin as a Georgian leader uh, first, and then Soviet mm-hmm. and socialist leader leader as a second. So, uh, and Khrushchev in Moscow in Central Committee, he 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 complains. Uh, I, 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 when I read the uh, minutes of the meeting, I well, I, I smiled, of course. Uh, he says, why? This happens. Why Georgians are uh, 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 they had this anti Soviet attitudes? Why they have this Georgian nationalism now? Uh, We built car factories, we built steel mills, we built, uh, I don't know, cement factories, we built, so in, in one word, he wants to say, we industrialize Georgia, you know, there is no, uh, there, there is no economic reason, for instance, to build a steel mill in Georgia, but Soviet Union built a steel mill in Georgia, just to make it uh, industrialized, you see what I mean, And and Khrushchev, uh i think was it 1956 i can't now remember exact date but he complains in moscow to the to the party committee and says why are they are still following this nationalist uh, old you know uh, an ideology of capitalist era we men, we we uh, elevated the economic system to a different level and now they are they are they are following these archaic ideas uh, although we transferred the country from a Peasant country to an industrial country. So this economic determinism made them falsely conclude that nations would disappear or nationalism would disappear once the Soviet society moved to a, to another um, uh, another economic system.
1: I want to I want to interject briefly again. Is that this This is so important to me because. We have People always try to indict the Soviet Union and Lenin, Leninism, and we have to give props to Strat- Trotsky. We have to understand that there was no country that had given a model of operationalizing Marxism before the Soviet Union. Marxism would be a dead theory in books if it was not for the Soviet Union. So for all of our friends on the quote-unquote SOC, DEM, or socialist left, who who poo-poo Marxist-Leninism, who poo-poo Stalin, who poo-poo the Soviet Union. Let us make this clear that it is the existence of the Soviet Union and this attempt to operationalize Marxism that makes the light that Marxism is implementable in Cuba, in Africa, in South America, all over the global South that use Marxist-Leninist tactics in China. Mm -hmm. To make Mm -hmm. socialism even alive and possible in today's world, and this Mm -hmm. is why one of the main reasons I despise when I see people take such an antagonistic tone towards Marxist-Leninists.
4: I think that's why it's important also to understand the uh uh, uh, uh the the correct things and the mistakes uh, the Soviet uh, uh model uh, had I mean the you see what I mean the uh, you, you are, I completely agree with you they do not have, they did not have a blueprint uh uh, a, a plan, uh, how to do things. There was just a bunch of theory uh, written by Western European philosophers, and they ended up in a uh, in a very uh, underdeveloped territory, trying to do something out of that, right? But not
1: then, to mention, uh, not to mention as much hate that Stalin gets, and yes, he did crimes. Dessaline did crimes two sentient crimes he took a backwater peasant country in less than a decade to create it an imperial superpower that mm. challenged the most greatest capitalist country in the world which was the united states but yeah but also at the same time
3: he, his his political his political and military leadership left the soviet union vulnerable to a terrible uh, invasion we we the soviet Any, union and he defeated the Nazis. But he didn't defeat the Nazis. If you look at the, if you look at most the stories, wow,
1: now Stalin didn't defeat the Nazis, really? No, it the was Russians, the, it the was Russians the, didn't defeat the Nazis.
3: It was the oh, so you think it's like just because Stalin's political leadership was a bane rather than a boon? You had the officer corps trained in, uh, trained there that was go. purged, that was purged by Stalin, and Who they, had, the to bring, when
1: the Russians they beat had to the Nazis. they had to bring them back. They had to bring back... Who, were, who, were the, who was the leader of the, of the Soviet Union when the Russians beat the Nazis, Gene? It's irrelevant. It's,
3: if it's you irrelevant, look,
1: really? Yes, it's, it's irrelevant. irrelevant. It's, it's irre- irrelevant that Stalin was leader of the Soviet Union when they beat the Nazis. Well, it's it, yeah, because basically
3: his leadership was more of a damage to the Soviet war effort than it was go. a boon. But this is just factual. The, the, this is just a factual assessment I, of I this, it, the I, strongest
4: effect. Guys, for Guys, we can come to the Second World War, but I want, just want to add uh, one last thing about uh, the perception of national question, nationality question by the uh, Bolsheviks, uh, beginning of the, you know, after the revolution and beginning of the 1920s, and I I, I genuinely enjoy uh, the discussion as well. Uh, I should admit that Um, uh, they, uh, as I mentioned, in theory, nations would disappear once the society moved from capitalism to socialism. But while waiting for this magical moment in a way, uh, they had to exhaust national identities by accelerating the historical uh, formations of these uh, identities. You see what I mean? So they saw uh, this issue as, a, uh, as something they cannot rid of. That's why it was like a driving car without fa- with failed brakes. So they could not stop the car. So the best thing to do, best alternative was to accelerate the car in order to run out of the fuel as, po- as soon as possible. That's why uh, Bolsheviks actually uh, one of the biggest nation builders in history. Uh, They're not the only ones. I mean, um, um, builders of modern national identities we we, we have uh, all around the world. Uh, uh, knows the Middle Eastern cases, uh, um, of course, uh, uh, in Eastern Europe we have many. From Finland to Iran, uh, from France to Russia, modern national identities uh, were constructed since 19th century, any in, well into the 20th century, uh, gradually in different one after another. And in the Soviet case, the Bolshevik Party, uh, um, uh, at the beginning, a Marxist party, an internationalist party, ended up building national identities in 1920s, 30s, 40s uh, onwards. Uh, I can go into more detail there, uh, what they did and uh, how the, the policy evolved in time. Um, but the, the main logic behind it was as i said uh, uh, they thought they are driving a car without with failed brakes and as they could not stop nationalism they thought let's accelerate it so that we can um, run out of uh, the nationalism can run out of fuel uh, and in this way we can Stop the car of nationalism or national identities, and we will have an internationalist, uh, an international identity, which is which has which is like the accumulation of human culture uh, beyond or above nation or nation or national cultures and identities. Let's not also forget
1: the intellectual intellectual contribution of Stalin formulating and formalizing Marxist-Leninist thought and making it operational on the international stage as well. What a load of bullshit.
3: You... I'm sorry, that that oh. is just
1: bullshit because
3: if you look at the policies of, the, of was the... Was
1: there Marxist-Leninism as an international
3: theory before Stalin? I mean, Trotsky was developing Was there
1: Marxist-Leninist international so what like, before so
3: Stalin? If you look at what the doctrine of Stalinism had... It was a two stage revolution theory. If, it, if Mao had not gone against the advice of the Soviet Union, there would have been no revolution in China. If the Communist party That's a, a that, straw well, man no, argument, Jean. No, that's no, it's not argument. a straw man argument because the, the two stage revolution theory, which Stalin brought back, the central argument of leninist principles was that you take the revolutionary opportunity when you have it whereas no one is talking about leninist ask principles ask al if you
0: don't me. let him finish i will mute you i will mute you you have to let people finish this isn't your house and you can't yell over people that's not what we do here you I have just, to let him finish
3: i just i strongly disagree with uh this kind of cult of personality around Stalin to believe that Stalin Stalin transformed the third international into an instrument of Soviet foreign policy. And in general, around the world, he supported not communist movements, but left nationalist movements. And, you know, he there were all kinds of mistakes, including the foundation of the state of Israel, which was a, 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 a product of Stalinist foreign policy. We look at the Chinese Revolution, the idea of the United Front, uh, which almost led to the liquidation of the Chinese Communist Party, not entirely Stalin's fault, but this uh, the, this transformation of the third international into an instrument of foreign policy why this happened is understandable because the soviet union had to protect itself as a great power but i don't think we need to put stalin up on a pedestal uh, for frankly uh, basically not doing a great job in the third world doing a lot of rhetoric Doing a lot of rhetoric for for uh, and if you look at the anti-colonial struggles, a lot of the support was given post-Stalin's era. So I think I think uh, we need to uh, I think we need to have a little bit more of a nuanced perspective on Stalin. The strongest argument I think in favor of Stalin is, however bad the industrialization process was, it was a necessary requirement and it created an industrial base that the Soviet Union needed to fight Nazi Germany. That's the strongest argument I can find in favor of Stalin. Beyond that, I think there's a lot of political and ideological mistakes which had long-term effects on uh, the struggle for socialism in parts of the world outside, like Stalin sold out the Iranian revolutionaries after the end of the first uh, Second World War. Uh, Stalin liquidated indigenous communist movements across uh, Central Europe. And ultimately, the system... The system that established by uh, the system hold on for one
0: second, Gene, hold on for one That's
3: second. That's it.
1: That's all. I'm doing.
0: Pass, why are you so? Why are you having a hissy fit? Why are you mad? Because you don't have anything to say.
1: No, I have lots of things to say. Pass, mean,
0: did, is, did, did 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 Stalin liquidate indigenous communist movements? Yes or no?
1: They wouldn't be black communists in America today if it wasn't for Stalin. I
0: knew you were going to say that. It was Stalin that had the leader of the of the uh, it was the African and, and he was Labor one and You know why?
1: You know why? Because, because he, he, he would
0: Trotsky. Trump. Trump because he knew Trotsky.
1: And because he didn't agree with the Black Belt thesis that would have given black people operational autonomy over their own that, land look, in the south.
0: Look. he liquidated people he didn't like. So,
1: and you, you know have how many people, stop. you know how many people Stop yeah. with the
0: you know how many people. Your boy In the boy French liquidated Revolution, the French
1: Revolution like. during the Red during the Reign of Terror, 10,000 uh-huh. French uh-huh. people were assassinated.
0: Did Stalin still kill that dude.
1: Okay. Did Stalin still J- kill that J- dude. Did Stalin still kill that dude. about 6,000 French people. Hey,
0: hey. You forgot. Does Stalin still kill that dude? <laughs> okay. Um now uh
2: I do 'cause like this can all happen uh elsewhere, right? You know, like we all know each other. We all got our numbers. Uh there's not so much. time. There's, there's not so much time as we have uh a historian on to actually talk these things through. So maybe we just put this on pause for a bit. I think there's one thing. That is undeniable. Stalin is obviously top three in sexiest, uh, <laughs> you know, communists. No disagreement so with
3: the No, disagreement. Like, I mean, that. can we
2: can we just jump from that point and actually maybe get back to the focal? Um, and I I, I do kind of even have a question to you as far as like what the projects were for the USSR. Um Haroon, if you can speak to what did these some of these projects look like with nation buildings, so maybe we can interrogate the good, bad, and or different of whoever the leader was of the USSR at that time
4: sure sure um yeah exactly the um the nationalities issue like um, uh the bolsheviks of course uh as as we already uh discussed uh, they uh they understood the importance of nationalities national identities and they were that in let's say they were not in japan right there wasn't there wasn't one ethnon linguistic group in the country there were literally more than a hundred uh, uh different ethnolinguistic linguistic groups and uh initially um um, uh, the, uh, these ethno-linguistic groups, national identities, uh, were promoted at all levels. Uh, uh, I can I can divide them into three groups. Um, first one is uh, Russian national identity. If you think about it, actually modern Russian national identity, there is a nice uh, academic literature on this as well, uh, is a product of uh, 1930s. Um, Because uh, before the Bolsheviks, the imperial identity uh, dominated uh, the discourse uh, around the monarchy, uh, you know, the, like the British uh, identity, let's say, uh, 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 vis-à-vis English identity, ethno-linguistic identity. You see what I mean? Uh, so um, in the, in the Russian Empire, Russian imperial identity um, uh, uh, was in a, a competing course with the um, Russian national identity emerging Russian modern Russian national identity and limiting it once the Russian imperial identity removed um, the the uh, in the, especially in after 1936 uh, the Bolsheviks uh, encouraged the uh, further development of modern Russian identity for instance um, um the the Ivan Ivan the terrible Ivan the Terrible was not a popular figure among uh, uh, peasants. I mean, he wasn't considered as a national figure. Uh, that was the promotion of the Soviet uh, literature, Soviet uh, internal as a propaganda or cultural products um, <clears throat> that turned Ivan the Terrible into a national leader, is uh, into a national hero in history. So Russian history was written. Russian history was written um, in a national frame in a national framework, not in an imperial this uh, in an imperial discourse, but in a, in, a, in a national sense, uh, modern national identity. In order to build a national identity, um, and also non-Russian uh, identities were encouraged in parallel. Uh, that's the contradictory of Russian uh, Soviet uh, policies, actually. So Georgians. Azerbaijanis, Armenians, Ukrainians, Belarusians, Kazakhs, Uzbeks, everyone had to have their own history uh, on, you know, culinary cuisine, uh, national cuisine, uh, national uh, tapestry, national uh, outfits, national uh, music. These things actually experience, uh, for instance, in Eastern Europe, uh, or in uh, uh, in middle east as well uh, in hungary in uh, poland in germany you know in romania greece and so forth um uh, if you look at the history of classical music for instance you will find uh, uh, composers uh, uh, that are taking classical music merging it with uh, national uh, let's say not national actually ethnic uh, um uh, motifs and uh, uh, developing a national classical music school uh, in Hungary, Bartók, in in, um, in, um, in Poland, for instance, Chopin. Um, in, in Russia, the beginning was uh, Tchaikovsky, for instance, uh, taking uh, Russian uh, ethnic village uh, peasant motifs, uh, folk songs, uh, right? Uh, and then uh, using those uh, motifs in classical music. So uh, in in the uh, in Soviet period, all nations were encouraged to experience the same uh, de- path of development, like Hachaturian, for instance, famous uh, Armenian uh, uh, classical music composer, Soviet Armenian classical music composer, I should uh, emphasize Soviet and Armenian. He uh, uh, composed uh, uh, famous pieces taking Armenian folk. Elements and merging them, uh, uh, using them in classical music. You can find the same process in Turkey in 1930s, 40s, 50s. You can find the same process in Germany in an earlier period. Um, uh, or or uh, Grimm uh, brothers, for instance, like the, you know, the, uh, f- collecting folk tales and labeling them as national stories, uh, st- uh, national literature. Hey, can you
2: um possibly i guess speak to the i like the successes successes and or failures of that type of nation building model where you are taking historical and cultural you know either history or just folk tales and and then you know i guess building off the cultural narrative and building their own nationality out of that how you know i guess good bad and different if there's uh, examples of well,
4: such well well um, the, the i think it it was uh, it was successful because uh, it uh, still survived after 1991 you see in afghanistan for instance uh, the most powerful country in history with this most powerful army the the you know, biggest military budget biggest economy the, the superior of all couldn't build a nation state in 20 years, although they invested billions of dollars. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Soviet case from Uzbekistan to Georgia to uh, I can include Ukraine and Russia itself. As I said, uh, modern national identities were uh, construction of modern national identities were taken very seriously. Uh, Unification and homogenization of language, for instance, because In Ukraine or in Russia, there were different dialects. Uh, um, In 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 Georgia, uh, I mean, we take these things granted, and we uh, and we think that languages, national languages, are homogeneous. No, they are not. Uh, Until 19th century, there wasn't a a one language, one homogeneous language that everyone spoke and understood. In Italy, for instance, uh, different regions could not understand each other. Uh, Mm -hmm. Italians know it better than me, of course. So. these things are method systematically done and institutionalized like uh, uh, in each republic an institution of history and institution of language uh, and literature uh, uh, institution of. Uh, uh, I don't know uh, ethnography <coughs> were opened. Experts were uh, uh, trained. They went to villages. They collected materials from. Uh, um, different regions, and then they they created a systematic uh, knowledge structure. They wrote history books for each republic, etc cetera, et cetera, So when you look at in uh, Africa, for instance, in um, post-colonial Africa, or post-colonial, uh, uh, or recent case Afghanistan, of course, we all know now what's going on there. Um, 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 uh, that also brings us to this discussion: if Soviet Union was a colonial power uh, a, a bo- uh, for non-Russians in the Soviet Union, you see there is a there is a uh, Cold War uh, discussion uh, uh, like that. So um, if you if you if you see the 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 difference uh, is very clear uh, because uh, uh, the Soviet case was in a way a state-driven rapid modernization. Uh, um uh, the 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 soviet administration uh, uh they basically wanted to uh have a rapid modernization and industrialization uh but if you have antagonisms among different ethnic groups different national identities discontent people killing each other uh, there's constantly a civ- potential civil war between different ethnicities. You cannot rule a country, let alone build a water dam, let alone build a steel mill, let alone build thousands of kilometers of railways. Because you want an Armenian engineer, a Georgian uh, constructor, uh, I don't know, a a, a Turkmen uh, peasant uh, producing the bread for those uh, industrial workers, work in tandem, work it together in a bigger project. So if you cannot uh, satisfy uh, these needs of different ethnicities and nationalities, uh, you cannot uh, run uh, uh, this, this project, you cannot uh, develop the country further, right? Because this is the, this is the legacy they had uh, um, before the Soviet rule, uh, in many regions of the russian empire people killed each other i mean in the caucasus for instance armenians and um, azerbaijanis muslims they, uh, they, they, they there was a, there were more than one civil wars there in uh, in the beginning of the 20th century so you say to the people who killed each other like in recent civil wars like in yugoslavian civil war you see what i mean the, the uh, syrian civil war so you say that you all different ethnicities. Now we will come together and build a big house. How can you do that? If you can create a peace among different ethnic groups to Which satisfy want, their I want, needs.
1: I want to interject for a moment, please. I want to address this. I didn't mean to yell at Gene, but I want to, this is very important to me and I want a dispensation here. I am not a, a Stalinist by any stretch of the imagination, but I recognize and acknowledge that Stalin is undermined because he basically did the extremes of revolution that in every revolution has happened. In France, again, as I mentioned, 10,000 citizens were murdered for the French Revolution. In the United States, after the glorious revolution here, not to mention that they kept slaving, Andrew Jackson massacred thousands of Native Americans to keep the American revolutionary flag alive. Jean-Jacques Dessalines murdered thousands of white Frenchmen to keep the integrity of his country. In revolutions, when you're challenging against whatever force of oppression you think, people get massacred. That's what happens in revolutions and to somehow singular out Stalin as some kind of incompetent or some kind of horrible man because he did exactly what the Americans did, what the French did, what the Haitians did, what every revolutionary does, kill people he's afraid or opposed to the larger project, excuse me, is ridiculous. And it's a, it's a fault on the left, whether you like Stalinism or Marxist-Leninism or not, because it's ahistorical co- compared to what actually happens in any revolution. And one of the reasons why I actually do defend Stalin is the same way he's erased from history is exactly what the West and the world has done to Jean-Jacques Dessalines for 200 years, which most people don't even know. He was the only one interested in an independent Haiti. Because Toussaint Louverture always wanted to be a house Negro for the French till his dying day, But because he massacred French opposition in his country, he is considered a black sheep to even to the point when my father was growing up, it was an embarrassment for our family to say that we were actually related to Jean-Jacques Dessalines. That's how bad it got in that country. And to treat Stalin as some kind of black sheep or socialism
4: is ridiculous and ignorant uh uh thank you Pascal, for 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 sharing your opinion i i i, I um uh, i i wanted to add uh, something else to what i said uh, about this uh, national uh, national policy because uh, if i don't add it uh, the you know the other half one half i i said the uh, certain aspects but then I did, did not cover yet uh, uh, other uh, aspects that uh, that that will uh, complete the uh, picture. Uh, the the uh, the as I said, this uh, encouragement of uh, Russian and non-Russian identities went hand in hand until 1936, which included also smaller ethnic groups like gypsies, for instance, right? So, uh, or um, or uh, the Kurdish population in the Caucasus um, uh, that I um, wrote an article about, uh, because there was this uh, three layers of identities in Soviet Union. One was the Soviet identity, the civic identity, like the American identity, non-ethnic identity, right? The Soviet identity. Uh, and then we had the, uh, uh, The identities, national identities with um, Union republics, like Russian identity, Ukrainian identity, uh, Uzbek identity, that in 1922, they gained a Republican status, like they had their own republic within the Federation. And then we had smaller groups like um, 100,000, 200,000, 500,000, 10,000, 20,000 populations, right? Very small. Uh, Udis, for instance, in the Caucasus, <clears throat> like few thousands. Uh, so in 1920s until up until 1936, there is a consistent policy of promoting identities at three levels simultaneously, right? Mm. Minus Russian. Russian was the Russian identity was the bad guy. <laughs> uh, the former oppressor identity. That's why that was the main potential threat. That was the main uh, source uh, considered as the main source of reactionary forces. That's why Russian identity until 1936 was in a way, uh, you know, kind of a a naughty child that you say, go and stand at the corner of the classroom, like uh, Russian identity was perceived like this. (laughs) The rest the rest was like encouraged to uh, enjoy the life. Uh, now, I,
2: I got I got to say, especially after you as you described that, I see some comparisons to like the f- federalism model of the United States, except it's just more of like a strict, you know, politic and, you know, government dynamic. Versus like a cultural aspect that is like Ukraine. Uh, in the, in as the well. US,
4: the borders are administrative borders; uh, are, they have nothing to do with ethnic identities. That was also an important discussion at the beginning when the Soviet Union was formed, because there was a group in the party seriously co- uh, co- um, uh, 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 said that we um, um, uh, we should design the new state according to economic needs, the administrative units, the borders, internal borders of the country should be drawn according to economic needs. For instance, Petersburg is a big port and industrialized industry center, right? So we should have a region of Petersburg and its hinterland, regardless the ethnic groups within this territory. Like there can be Finns, Russians, whatever, who are living there, we don't care. The borders should be designed, uh, internal borders, according to the economic needs, big industrial economic centers and their hinterland around that. Another group in the party said, no, we cannot do this because that will be denying the na- reality of national identities on the ground. We should draw the administrative bond boundaries, the administrative uh, delimitation had to be done according to the ethnicities or national identities we have. That's why, and the second group won the discussion. And that's why the Soviet Union, if you look at the map, the Repo- Union Republic's borders are drawn according to ethno-linguistic divisions, not according to economic needs. They, they, they think about it. Like Marxists uh, ruling a country, they, sh- they have, they usually, they should be putting economy and economic needs as a priority. But they say no, we will not do that. We will draw the borders, internal borders, according to ethnic um, uh, identities even so to the extent that when they won the civil war during that period for instance they uh, after right after in 1920-21, 20, they uh, the red army entered today's azerbaijan armenia and georgia and the, those three republics which were like um uh, there was an inter- there was a short period in one two years they were uh, independent uh when they became part of the soviet union. Bolsheviks continued to recognize more or less the borders of those countries. Um, just they, they made minor changes in order to appease everyone, because everyone claimed others' uh, lands. <laughs> so it was impossible to uh, appease everyone, make everyone happy. They did their best uh, just to balance, uh, you know, three different nations in one region. Again, in order to make everyone happy so that everyone hand in hand could develop the country because country had to be ready for a rapid industrialization and modernization. So but ni- after 1936, the policy changed. That's what I wanted to add yep. uh, after 1936 Russian national identity uh, encouraged as other national identities um, be- be- for various reasons and uh, after the second world war russian national identity became even more dominant vis-a-vis other national identities so the soviet period is not a one color uh story uh it there are minimum three or four different stages because the River of history flows so fast in that 70 years. So many things are happening one after another and very radical decisions always uh, were taken one after another. You know, uh, if you look at that, each lead Soviet leader wanted to reform the previous uh, uh, change, the previous uh, leaders epoch like uh, decisions. So um, so there are different stages. After 1947, uh, we have more uh, Russian identity the Russian national identity becoming more dominant. This doesn't mean that other nations were russified, forced to be Russian. That was impossible. And everyone knew that, I mean, uh, that would create antagonism and, uh, reaction. Um, the Russian language in 1930s became, uh, prominent for economic and military reasons. Uh, there are uh, archive materials around this discussion. I mean, Stalin and the other leading uh, members of the Politburo and uh, Central Committee—they discuss.
2: I mean, it uh, seems like an easy, like it's just a, an easy scale upward of what they were doing regionally. You know, like within you know specific you know nations that they were trying to build. Like you said, like normalizing one lang- language is a benefit to you know collectivizing that 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 identity within the borders. But I guess what you're saying, too, is also that like there wasn't a forceful like spread of Russian, um, I guess, the Russian cultural narrative. But however, there was like the I mean, we say that um, just, I guess, advised to, you know, I guess, broaden some cultural narrative, start speaking Russian just for the ease of the development of the overall project.
4: Yes, for instance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Correct. You are right. For instance, a a timber factory in Siberia producing timber. Right. And then there is a a furniture factory in, uh, let's say in Odessa. Right. So uh, and there is a railway transportation network uh, uh, connecting these two. So timber factory manager and the produce uh, timber producer is there uh, should speak. Or the same language or the writing the same language in the documents record things, uh, accountancy, finance or transportation of the timber, raw material to the factory in another republic is where they speak another language. Um, When the economy developed gradually in 1930s, when the industrialization, urbanization took off, you know, um, a a common language, necessity of a common language appeared. That's the economic reason. Otherwise, how can you connect different uh, production point lines and transportation system, agriculture, industry? uh, it's impossible. Um, even you cannot do accountancy uh, we, we, without a single language. But there's also a military aspect of this. After 1933, when Hitler came to power, Soviet leadership was uh, uh, day and night. They start to think about uh, 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 the war uh, that was uh, coming towards them. Uh, they, they, they had. Uh, you see the Spanish Civil War and so on, um, the, the Italian intervention in Africa, uh, J- Japanese expansion in Asia in 1930. So actually, war for the Soviet uh, leadership, war did not start in 1939. The war started much earlier for the Soviet leadership. That they, they perceived these signals, and the whole system was uh, geared, restructured. Prepared for the start to start to prepare the whole country actually decisions. When you look at this, certain decisions they made, they made the, the, the investment in military industry and so on. You see, uh, there is no there is no doubt about that. There is no question about that. They they know they have a perception of war coming towards them like a truck, and they have to be ready. One of the discussions was around the, again Russian language. Uh, that I tried to explain the economic reason. Um, but there's also military reason, um, even during the Second World War, uh, it many Red Army soldiers, non-Russian Red Army soldiers did not know Russian. So can you imagine you are a drilling officer, uh, drilling sergeant, or uh, you are a commander, uh, a colonel in front of 1000 people? Half of them don't know uh, uh, Russian. You say, turn right. half of them turns left (laughs) how can you win a war how can you run a a military system like this you see uh, it and this was discussed i mean because there were even national uh, military units within the red army um up until 1930s in 1920s uh, and and uh, no language was uh, forbidden i mean each individual even if you were a member of 10,000 Udi ethnic group that no one knows you are entitled to have a translator at the court you have a, a right to uh, have a textbook in reality you wouldn't have a textbook because there wouldn't be enough money or educated uh, you know um, people probably to write a textbook a, a, a geometry book in Udi language but On paper, at least you had a solid guarantee until 1936. But after that, uh, the two things happened. One of them is this prioritization of Russian language in order to uh, uh, parallel to this economic integration and preparation for the war. And the second is um, 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 this ethnophilia. Uh, came to an end, as historians of the Soviet Union usually call it, ethnophilia. Only re- the national identities which, has, uh, na- uh, repu- which uh, have republics, like in Azerbaijan, only Azerbaijani language will be mm-hmm. supported, not the uh, small minorities there. In Georgia, for instance, Georgian language will be priority, uh, not other small minorities there. You see these two things happened in parallel
1: i gotta take this super chat we gotta send a, th- a shout out for sure for sure for sure to landrew landrew with this hundred dollar super chat as dr lou said this is revolution is more than an entertainment podcast it's a teaching tool thank you for the outstanding teaching shout out to landrew landrew for that one that was uh Can it...
2: now I, I got a question for the panel if uh, I think if we're if we're all good to, ready to you know, play nicely mm-hmm. with each other again be friends comrades.
3: we always we're, we're always know, friends <laughs> Pascal, Pascal um, and I can have fruity conversations occasionally because pause, on the,
1: fru- pause on the fruity
3: pause. <laughs> so no, I had yeah, a I, have, yeah, I got a question
2: yeah, though because of dealing with these like the, the the nation building building and like I guess it was like building the project and the use of culture and developing a culture within regions um and i think too is like as 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 someone if someone was you know just existing as as a partisan or some worker and then you know people are coming and saying listen we're gonna we're actually going to help and put you as the front that is going to be more acceptable than you know i guess like you'd reference the uh united states nation building effort in afghanistan which horrible failure as we can tell um So turning the question, I guess, is what lessons can we take, right, as, you know, leftists in the United States or as part of an international community? What lessons, I mean, I guess, to the panel, do you think that we could, you know, could could take dealing with maybe some of the different cultural narratives that uh, exist within the United States um, and possibly tie that to, some type of movement that would be useful in a way that wouldn't be so, I guess, um, yeah, that, that, that wouldn't be so different than what they already existed, the cultural narrative that they already existed.
1: Lesson number one, the world is worse off without the Soviet Union. And I'm not joking, because if there was a serious socialist counter hegemon in the world, in the, if there was a serious socialist counter in the world, like during the Cold War, that threatened the United States to basically end Jim Crow, that threatened the United States to democratize uh, the, the world, its, its population by importing immigrants from other countries and other colors as well. If there was a serious soldier, socialist counter hegemon in the world that was ideological, unlike China, then we could actually have an internationalist social, socialist project like the Common Turn that might be worth something.
3: I mean, I don't disagree. I think the existence of the Soviet Union was an important counterbalance on uh, U.S. uh, political power, and it's generally good for peoples in the developing world. And I've discussed this off-air with Harun before. It's generally good for people to have different options uh, in the world rather than having to rely on the Washington consensus. We saw what happened in the 90s and 2000s when the United States' military power was unchallenged. We saw not only the imposition of the neoliberal political order through uh, tools and mechanisms, uh, uh, you know, uh, diplomatic and and fiscal tools and mechanisms, but the war on terror would not have been able to have taken place. There would have been, you know, uh, if if there hadn't been for uh, the, you know, if there'd been a counter hegemon. I mean, like, look at Russia today. It's not like Russia today is some kind of paradise compared to how it was in, in the Soviet period. You have basically the pauperization of the country, the the, the looting of its industrial uh, capacity and the transformation of Russia into an oligarchy, uh, you know, we, which relies primarily on, on, on uh, um, uh, natural resources like petroleum. Uh, and an arms industry that is uh, left over from the Soviet period. So, you know, I don't want people in the chat to get uh, get the wrong idea that my critique of Stalin and, and the Soviet Union come, uh, is, uh, is like the so- Soviet Union bad. I have specific critiques of that historical project, uh, but that doesn't mean that I think the collapse of the Soviet Union was generally positive, for the global system because i do not think it was uh, i don't i don't think it was a positive development um, because now we have an international system which has has been more dangerous in many ways in many parts of the third world than during during the cold uh, during the cold war era we have a military power of the united states that is completely unchecked and we have a russia and a post soviet world Well, yes, a couple of countries on the edge that got into the European Union have benefited, but the vast majority of the population in the Soviet Union, a former Soviet Union, has not benefited. You look at Central Asia, you look at the Caucasus, you look at Russia, uh, you know, you have like a society which is in health collapse, in economic collapse, you have alcoholism, and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, I think... Uh, I think we have to. Uh, I think we have to. T- I my position is just to take a nuanced view on on, on the history of the Soviet Union.
4: Uh, I I I want to add few things. Actually, these are very important points, guys. You are you are uh, touching like they they are so important. And you know the things we discuss. Uh, might the things we discuss might sound a bit like history? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's history, but there are always uh, consequences, uh, uh, and there are always uh, repercussions. There are always, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 connections to what we experience nowadays. For instance, the Soviet nation-building uh, project and vis-à-vis Af- what happened in Afghanistan, right? Um, um, the one thing I want to add is. Um, Um, uh, To my mind, um, uh, when we look at this nationality issue in Soviet Union, after a point, Russian national identity, Russian nationalism, gradually started to uh, hijack the Soviet project, internationalist project. And on top of that, uh, other national identities also start to uh drag the union in different directions so by the by 1970s first the russian of course national identity. after the victory after the military victory because many russians thought that this is happened to thanks to them not to because of ukrainians georgians kazakh Kyrgyz, and so on Uh, numerically they suffered the most they sacrificed the most uh, and they thought this is this is a this is a long journey started since the Peter the Great modernization of Russia. We always follow the West. Now our army marching in Berlin. We are the victories and thanks to Russians, this happened. Many Russians thought like this and actually. In Stalin's period, um, uh, the last purge, physically uh, purging people, killing, shooting people happened in order to uh, uh, remove some Russian uh, some some politicians in Leningrad accused for being Russian nationalists. Uh it's it's a long story if you want I can give a bit more detail but that was the last time in 1946 47 when uh during the Stalinist period uh a, a secret police uh shot people uh, for political reasons uh, I'm I'm not talking about sending exile continued but shooting people killing people uh for political reasons happened because Uh, They were accused uh, for harboring uh, Russian nationalism. This is very ironic because now today Russian fascist groups, Russian nationalist bikers Uh, uh, motorcyclists uh, there is a fascist group like this uh, uh, like kind of a skinhead slash biker slash uh, with a fascist ideology uh, wandering in Russia. Uh, They go and pay respect at uh, at Stalin's uh, (laughs) grave in uh, Kremlin seeing it as a Russian victorious general and uh, founding father of modern Russia, which is of course, if Stalin probably came back, he would uh, definitely shoot them as well, but...
1: Because they accused Stalin of being a Russian nationalist. Well, you're saying Stalin was actually anti-Russian nationalist project. You're saying that he was antagonistic to the concept of Russian nationalism.
4: He he saw nations uh, national identities as an instrument. He was not a Georgian or Russian nationalist. He saw them as a as an existing fact And in order to mobilize people, tools that can be used temporarily. But not as a as a um, like a, a, a means to achieve a goal, not the goal itself. He was because a nationalist would perceive national identity or nationalism as an ideology, uh, a, 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 as a means and a, and a goal to achieve. But for Stalin, it was a it was just a reality of life that he he, he had to. Uh, in a way, accommodate and use it for the uh, for 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 his own goals. uh, Dr. Let me ask
1: you, this is a very important question. I want to ask you, do you believe that Stalin actually truly believed in the socialist revolution internationally? Or he was just more interested in acquiring power on his own terms?
4: Yeah, that's, that's, uh, I think in the short term, he didn't believe in the long term, he believed. That's the dichotomy. He said uh, one Soviet tractor is much better than 10 foreign socialists. There was a reason for that. The the explanation of that sentence is we need to build first industry here so that we can think about a, a global perspective later. Otherwise, without an economic base, we cannot do anything. Uh so, uh so that's why my question would be he wouldn't he didn't believe in uh, a world revolution in the short term because he didn't see any material means for that but he his idea of a world revolution in a distance uh still he he kept he kept that uh, but in a in a long term uh idea not overnight Uh, uh, Connecting this to China, actually, uh, I now I'm I'm sometimes I think like, uh, is China experiencing a 1947 moment uh, Mm -hmm. as someone who studied Soviet Union? Because um, uh, I'm I'm pretty sure there are millions of people in China uh, and they're right uh, to believe. So they say they probably say, We uh, elevated 800 million people uh, from Mm -hmm. uh, poverty and World Bank reports recognize this. And this population equals to Sub-Saharan, Sub-Saharan Africa. You know, if you if you uh, deduct the the Mediterranean cost population of Africa, the whole continent is 850 million. So we have managed to lift the same amount of people in China within 25 years. From desperate poverty to a level where they can have access to clean water, sewage system, free education, free health service, healthcare service. While in the last half a century in a whole con- continent, there wasn't any such achievement, right? So they can say, uh, who did it? Now, there are two answers to that question. <laughs> one, co- one answer is Communist Party did it. The ideology did it. And the other answer is Chinese people did it, which can be easily translated into easily. Chinese nation did it. You see what I mean? Uh, Not the Chinese toiling masses, but the Chinese nation did it, which can slide very easily from a left wing discourse to a right wing discourse. This was this is what happened in Soviet Union. Uh, That's why after 1947. Russian national identity became something that party officials also recognize as a fa- I mean I uh, we cannot fight against this we will embrace this right okay we will not turn Azerbaijanis or Georgians into Russians but we will give Russians a, a first among equal place mm-hmm. isn't this the isn't
3: this the contradiction you know the contradiction between the notion of uh, socialism in one country on one hand, socialism in one country is a entirely logical, uh, logical political uh, stance given the failure of revolutions to break out in other parts of the world and the international isolation of the Bolshevik revolution. But at the same time, as you're saying, it creates that pressure that increasingly forces the communist leadership to focus on internal development, not only ignoring external revolution, but at times actually hampering external revolution because of the necessities of having, you know, protecting the revolution at home. So you need to make a deal to get the oil from the Shah. Well, you know, it would be nice to have a socialist revolution in uh, Iran, but if the Shah will make the uh, deal with us, we need that oil. so we end up with this
4: kind of contradiction and I think- especially I, I completely agree with you. sorry for interrupting until 1960s, I think this is the mentality of the Soviet leadership uh the the the, the, the elites that did the, made the revolution and the, uh, you know the, uh, Stalin and his group later on uh, successful uh, within the internal party power struggle uh, they have always had this uh, siege mentality. They always thought that we are under siege. We have to we constantly have to protect and we have to be defensive. Uh, We we have to consolidate our uh, defense barriers. But after uh, 1950s, 60s, when Soviet Union reached a certain level of uh, economic development, uh, especially later Khrushchev's and Brezhnev period then you see for instance Soviet agencies being more active in Africa in Latin America uh, because they had more kind of self confidence you know we are not like a, a revolutionaries uh, founded themselves accidentally in an agricultural society, now turning it into a, a European philosopher's uh, idea, a based on European philosopher's idea, you know, something uh, magical. And everyone is attacking, as you said, American troops in the north, Japanese and British and French in the south, and so on. So that, uh, because the Civil War period shaped the uh, minds of these people, the Civil War period. It was a very bloody Civil War. Millions of people perished. Believe me, it was a very, I mean, the, if you have, have you ever seen the pictures of Syria, uh, recent pictures like the mm-hmm. destroyed cities and towns and so on. Exactly the same thing happened in Russia within three years. The revolution, it was bloodless in uh, February, October Revolution, but the subsequent Civil War for three years was so destructive that Soviet economy reached 1913 levels only in 1927. So they needed seven years to rebuild the country and reach to the production levels of the pre-war level, uh, the pre-First World War level. So these people experienced the civil war and they had this civil war mentality. They had they had this um, uh, defensive uh, protective uh, mentality. Right. So we need tractors. OK, perhaps. There can be a revolution in France, but our priority is to have first Soviet tractors. Only after 1960s, with a self-confident Soviet new self-confident Soviet generation, uh, which was brought up during the uh, 1930s and 40s, which experienced the victory, which experienced the Red Army marching in Berlin and so on, which experienced the atomic bomb, possession of the atomic bomb and so on. So they. Felt like okay, now we can send a delegation to Ghana and help them uh, with their uh, water dam construction. Mm -hmm. Okay, we can now send doctors to I don't know Central African Republic and uh, help them with irrigation systems or clean water, uh, you know, uh, pipe Mm -hmm. pipes and so on. it, it's a di- there are the two different epochs, two different people, two different generations. If you look in terms of Soviet history. Uh. Excellent. So uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, discussions around Soviet Union happens when we uh, pick up a certain aspect or a certain decade uh, mm. within this long 70 years. Actually, there are many nuances. There are changing policies, contradictory policies one after another. Very sharp U-turns sometimes, based on the uh, of the conditions of the time. Um, and um, it's it's usually better to see a bigger picture uh, and to see these continuities and discontinuities uh, and judge the period based on that. Otherwise. Uh, uh, picking a certain aspect, certain period, certain decade uh, might uh, mislead us. Uh, and we might have uh, r- wrong lessons from a Soviet experience in that sense.
1: Well, oh, we, yeah. I, before we go out, I'm going to make a request to Jason. I just sent him a video. I want to ask him if we can go out to this video. I think it will be a very good to go out <laughs> for, uh, for this subject matter. It's a video so, that I find very inspirational. So, Jason,
2: are I'll, you... Are you doing
3: a neck neck massager right now? Oh yes, I am. Okay. Got the neck massager. Well, Harun, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you will come back to talk more. We 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 only scratched the surface today, so we history. can go
2: deeper into this. We can I, go well, deep. I I you know, like that's the, like if it would be okay if the panel would indulge me. I, I, I want to ask the question though. It's like, what is the usefulness of some of the topics? that we discuss today to our current goals in, you know, the United States and internationally, you know, is there anything, or uh, are we just getting a history lesson as far as some of the cultural focus as far, you know, like is it a nation building, um, or even just how we
1: discuss historical, you know, topics or anything like what? what we're learning that left sectarianism is stupid and we should stop banging people because they're MLs or trots or someone else because so we banging have them like have sex with them. What is so <laughs> <banging> that? <them>
2: like <laughs> little... Nice banging.
1: That's well it. we can we can we can
3: disagree with that with, with each other without trying to go full ma'am, because even if we disagree over historical facts, we can still oh. agree on a lot more uh, than we disagree on. And frankly, <laughs> as Pascal always says the left is so weak, The being super sectarian about things is kind of pointless. So I'm not a big Stalin fan, but I'm happy to work alongside MLs if we have a common goal because they're rather, they're, they're closer to me than a reactionary fascist.
1: Jason, can we go out with the video that I, I shared, please? Oh, we can, do, we can do
0: whatever you like right now because these people's house has this massager. And they say, <laughs> hey, Jason, we know you had a long drive getting down here. We charge this up.
3: Harvard,
4: did you did you enjoy yourself today I, I enjoyed it very much thank you very much uh, for for having me I, I enjoyed the questions as well they were challenging uh, I I'm, I'm so happy uh, to gather with so uh, learned uh, uh, intellectual uh, people uh, like you like um, uh, as a group uh, you uh, be, uh, you know, being a guest of an intellectual elite like this uh, was a privilege. Uh, thank you very much.
2: I think he's. Are you, that, that's, that's a joke, right? He's talking,
0: is, is it Dr.
4: No. <laughs> no we, we, I, 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 we, we
0: have to bring you back on. We have to bring yeah. you thank back Thank you. On.
1: Thank you for coming. Thank you.
0: For Dr. Yilmaz, we have to bring you back on.
1: Jason, hit, hit the video, Jason, please.
0: Hold on, brother. Hold on. That means I got to move my arm. <laughs> don't, don't we?
3: Don't <laughs> we, don't, we, don't we have to advertise next week's shows? The important shows we will be having next week.
0: Why don't you guys advertise the next week's shows?
3: With well, us? next week, who do we have, Pascal?
1: Thursday, we'll be we will be broadcasting a uh, recorded show with Richard Wolf that we'll be doing on Tuesday, but we will it will be recorded. It will not be a live stream. We should be. Should we? Enjoying. Should
0: we maybe? Uh, should we do it like we do the um the patron half and and send out a, a link to patrons who want to participate in the Richard Wolf show?
1: It's at three o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah and I mean, still still fuck us home? Some There's people live in different time zones. I, mean, I, to I told them it was gonna be I told it was gonna be pre-recorded, and I wouldn't want to just be like, okay, we're gonna do a live trip that's I've already told them it would be pre-recorded.
0: Okay, well, Pascal but, ruined y'all fun. Just remember that.
3: But you could send out the link. You could send out the uh, the link to the pre-record early for the patrons.
1: You could do that.
0: I mean, that's cool, but it'd be better Let's, if they were like Doctor Wolf.
1: They can ask a question. I'm just gonna. Well,
3: you could collect up next some questions yeah, next you time. Who's
1: our Tuesday guest, Gene?
3: We've got Zach Exley coming. Uh, Zach Exley is... Also a
0: student of Richard Wolf.
3: Also a student of Richard Wolf. yeah. As is a,
0: another homie of the show, Dr. Asatar Bear.
1: Yeah, so... Uh, well, Jason, why do you sound like you're doing, like, you know, the, uh, what do they call it, the, uh, Quiet Storm. The, DJ the Quiet Storm?
0: Because right now...
3: He sounds I like the guy it. from the Snoop Dogg ad, from. this is e- DJ Easy Dick slash <laughs> DJ
0: the... Easy Dick. <laughs>
3: um,
2: no, I'll say... Uh, Haroon... To, out of respect for your time if you if you want to leave as we do this nonsense <laughs> like, feel free there's, there's there's no reason that you have to yeah. like, subject yourself to this
1: I like I'm, to hear I like how to hear the video that's why I'm asking you to play i'm, um,
0: I'm trying- I'm trying to calm comp- my speakers I blew my speakers, so I'm very upset. Those are the only set of speakers that I have, my monitors, so I'm trying to calm myself down and then Pascal got so mad that he had the longest string of drool come down his mouth (laughs) that, yes, when we're going to do a clip, we're going to play that shit in slow motion. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to animate the drool.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We went so fast from like, this is a great group of intellectuals. What are we going to call it?
0: Does it have a name? When Pascal put that picture up of him as a little boy, I was like, why do you think I'm not going to use this? <laughs> <laughs> the comment said that you have that same look on your face now.
1: I had hair then.
3: You still have hair now? He yeah, has on
2: his
0: back and balls. <laughs>
2: Honestly, when I like think of like young Pascal going through law school, it's exactly as I see him now, except with the kid and play haircut. <laughs> I don't know if it's true or false, but that's just what I believe. <laughs>
4: well we're t- talking about hair uh, uh Jeannie has two times more hair since then, since i saw him a, uh, you know oh like, that's like right. that's <laughs> last time
0: uh, basically he said jnga
3: i used it. to have i i i used to have short hair yeah i used, I used to have very short hair but uh, uh, now you, uh, i let my locks grow and my sakal
4: yeah, you, yeah. Your Taliban sakal is also. Your Taliban beard is also good. Uh, I'm or, ready. I should. Ma, Mark, you're, actually you actually, you're you're getting closer to Karl Marx. Uh, you know, photographs. You know, those uh, pro- prominent oh. ones. Uh, yeah, uh, is that what nice, you're going
2: for Jean? Huh? I didn't
4: Taliban, think.
2: Talib, I was, I was more going. <laughs> for, I was
3: more going for um for uh Laszlo from What We Do in the Dark. But okay, I'll do it. Have you seen What We Do in the Dark? <laughs> What, are we, doing uh, yes. yeah, doing what we do in the shadows? Sorry. Yeah. What we do in the shadows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah what are we, doing what we do in the shadows? I'm going for the Laszlo look. <laughs> bat! Everybody bat! <laughs> oh. The pornography was fantastic. That's my that's my Laszlo <laughs> impression. I try to do. Not bad. Not, not bad. Bat.
0: Okay. Hold on, Pascal. I got yeah. I got the I got the thing. Hold on. let uh. Let me share the screen. This is so comfortable.
3: Oh Nando the Relentless. Nando the Relentless is Persian.
0: I can't believe I have lived my life and didn't know this device
3: existed. That, the that, the the white dude in that the energy vampire. Oh, he's freaking amazing, jo- uh, Colin Robinson.
0: Yeah. Pascal, do you have tension in your shoulders?
1: No, not right now.
0: Uh, I'm gonna get you one of these for Christmas. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, I'll I'll accept that gift.
0: I mean, this is that. this is pretty amazing. It's literally it's literally
3: amazing. Yeah, you you need one of those to like keep you in in. oh there we go. What's this?
1: This Paul is Paul singing the Soviet anthem in English. Okay. This
0: is this is how fired up Pascal was for the show. He listened to this uh, on repeat this morning as he was brushing his teeth.
3: In front of the mirror. Just going, yeah of- Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready.
0: Get them, motherfuckers. Say <laughs> some But Harun, <laughs> Harun oh, will definitely,
3: we'll definitely have you back. Perhaps to <laughs> talk about what American historians get wrong about the Soviet Union. How about
4: that? Uh, that's a brilliant topic, I think.
3: And, uh, how, and, and it's probably going to be a long
4: one, too. Uh, how they wrote and rewrote um, the Soviet history in the U.S. And then and rewriting the way, it.
3: I want to ask America. you something quickly. I just have a I have a quick question to ask. What do you think of the books Team Stalin? Have you read that one? Team St-
0: Team St- Stalin? Because I like yeah, Team you- Stalin.
3: Yeah, is it called Team Stalin? I forget. Team Smells uh, like teen
0: Stalin. <laughs> Team. Team Stalin.
4: Team yeah.
3: Stalin. On Team Stalin. That's what it was called. On Team Stalin. Uh, I don't know that one.
4: Oh, okay. It's.
3: It's by Sheila Fitzpatrick's. Uh, I just ah, Fitz,
4: F- Sheila Fitzpatrick's book. If, if she wrote it, uh, I would love to read it. Oh yeah. It was a good book. I enjoyed it. It's um, on to- uh, it must be a new one then. I don't, I don't know. Is it a new, is it a new publication? Fitzpatrick's books. Uh, she's a great historian. Um,
0: Oh, okay, Yeah, I'm going to play this and then I'm going to actually fall asleep.
4: Wonderful. Uh, It's always nice to hear Paul Robson.
0: Beautiful voice, amazing athlete, great actor, one hell of an activist.
3: And they named the London School of Oriental and African Studies graduate halls of residence Paul Robson House.
2: Hmm. Wow. Wow. Do we know how Paul felt about Stalin?
0: Uh, he, likes he, was, he, he liked Stalin until, like Stalin. until the, towards the end of his life. He actually kind of pushed back on some of the things he had said.
3: <coughs>
0: let's not uh, let's not Gerald reopen Horn,
5: that can of worms.
0: Gerald Horn wrote a really great uh, biography on uh, Paul Robeson. So here we go, guys. I want to once again thank our guest. Thank you guys for the super United chance. I want to thank Pascal for sending this video. I want to thank Marcus for just being in. I love you guys. Ages, and we're out. A dream of a
5: people, their fortress secure. Long live our Soviet motherland. Built by the people's mighty hand. Long live our people, united and free Strong in our friendship, pride by fire Long may our crimson flag inspire Shining in glory for all men to see Through days dark and stormy While great Lenin led us Saw the bright sun of freedom, above, and Stalin, our leader, with faith in the people, inspired us to build the land that we love. Future destroyed the invader and brought to our homeland the laurels of fame. Her glory will live in the memory of nations, and all generations will honor her name. Long live our Soviet motherland, built by the people's might. Long live our people, united and free, strong in a friendship tried by fire. Long may our crimson flag inspire, shining in glory for all.